Hey guys, thanks for joining uh, this episode of the podcast. Uh, I finally have the chance to record uh, uh, more episodes on a consistent basis because I'm on the road uh, a lot. So that's the the, uh, upside. The downside is I'm recording uh, when and where I can. So the sound quality might not always be the best, but hopefully you can focus on the content and uh, enjoy that part of it. So uh, thanks for joining. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Positive Thrifter Podcast. I am Marcello Biaki, aka the Positive Thrifter. Um, I know it's been a while since I've recorded an episode. Uh, lots been going on, um, but I am now frequently making uh, long trips to Toronto to source product. And I figured, you know, why not use the time, which I used to. That's how I used to record my episodes, basically when I was driving and on the road. So I figured, hey, let's record some some episodes just while I'm driving and then uh, go from there. And to be honest, I have zero planned subject matter for this episode uh, because it just kind of hit me, like, you know, why not just use the time? So, and I kind of think, you know, I, I think it's going to be kind of cool to just ad-lib it, just kind of talk about some things that are going on uh, in my life, uh, with the business, uh, on a personal level, level, whatever. And, uh, Hey, listen, you guys are either going to appreciate the content or not. So, um, yeah, so I figured I'd just go for it and, and chat. So, so yeah, so no, um, uh, basically a prepared subject matter. I'm just going to chat what's been going on with myself, with, uh, Tricky Inc., with Tricky 2, with the gallery, uh, just everything that's going on and, uh, hopefully you find it interesting. So, yeah. So, uh, I believe July was the last time uh, I recorded an episode and that was about, uh, a month after we opened the gallery. Um, the gallery is going extremely well. Um, what I love about it most though, I think the gallery is a, an excellent, uh, sort of example of, of being in business and how you have to sort of, uh, Sort of, sort of like work on the fly and uh, you got to tweak as you go because, you know, there's a lot of things you can't foresee when you're starting a business and um, you sort of have to gather data as the business is rolling along and, uh, and adjust and go from there. And I know a lot of people who uh, embark on being an entrepreneur, they, don't, they find that difficult because... Uh, you know, people often come from the working world where there's a uh, very set structure. You show up for work every day. You have certain expectations. Um, you do your job and, and that's it. Whereas being in business is a little different. Being in business is sort of like uh, perpetual change. Like you're perpetually growing and perpetual tweaking, learning, understanding, uh, you know, taking the data of your operations and seeing, you know, where you may have missed some things, where uh, where things need improvement, or like how you may just have perceived how something was going to work out and it doesn't work out at all, and you got to adjust. Because if you don't adjust, you can quickly uh, go downhill. So, so uh, you know, the last time I recorded an episode, we were about a month into the gallery. Um, you know, we were still in that honeymoon stage. Uh, of, um, you know, being a new store opening, having five vendors who, you know, were all had a following in Montreal and just the uniqueness of it. Also, the location where we open, 
we sort of opened in a different location where a lot of other stores were opening. And, you know, there was a lot of interest early on and, and things are fine. And, and uh, you know, for those of you who don't know, the gallery is a, a co-op store. There's five of us, five of us on the lease, the five founders, um, which consists of, uh, of two ladies, um, Ivy, Ivy Dewar, who, is, who runs Poison Thrift, um, Sabrine Sadek, who runs uh, The Overlooked, um, Glenn Mangeris, who's Uncle Glenn, who owns uh, Flippin' Thrifting, and uh, Tony Amato, who owns uh, Vintage Thrift 514, and of course myself, Marcello Biaki, owner of Tricky Inc. And uh, we're all vendors as well at Flow. That's how we all sort of uh, have a commonality. I mean, I, I knew Glenn before Flow, I knew Tony, I know I knew everybody before I was even in Flow personally. Um, I believe the gals and Tony were some of the original vendors, and then not long after, uh, Glenn be, uh, became a vendor at Flow, and then uh, I joined uh, about a year and a half ago. So I knew everybody except, I believe, Sabrine beforehand, and, uh, you know, we just had a... It's an interesting story how how we came together. Like, um, you know, I had been talking with uh, pretty much everyone other than, again, Sabrine, who I hadn't met, and uh, we we're always bouncing ideas. And, uh, you know, Glenn and I had talked a lot about uh, potential, you know, running some pop-ups during the summer months, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and then one day I happened to be visiting Ivy. I was purchasing some stuff from her, which I had done uh, on a couple of occasions. And uh, Ivy lives in NDG. And basically we were chatting. And, you know, she had uh, talked about some locations she found interesting. And, in, uh, in the NDG area, and, uh, you know, it didn't pan out with the location she had in mind, because it became rented almost right away once we started talking about it, um, but again, I had been speaking with Glenn, now I was speaking with Ivy, um, I believe I asked, had some conversations with Tony as well, too, so we're like, hey, let's maybe do something together where we could open, um, you know, the original plan was just open sort of like a pop-up temporary location, so we all agreed to meet for dinner, at uh, a restaurant in NDG called Saint uh, Saison Sushi, so we had a nice, nice meeting there, and you know uh, we're all vibing and all we're all very on similar pages, all very interested in working together to finding uh, additional opportunities that we could, uh, you know, explore. And we're like, okay, we had a nice dinner, and we're like, okay, you know what? Our first objective is to find a location. So. That will be our first priority. So we, we proceeded to leave the restaurant, and Glenn happened to say, well, wait a second, there's a spot right here. So we literally left the restaurant, walked downstairs, took a look in the window at the spot, saw that it was like a really nice location, completely finished, like it was all done. There was nothing needed to be done in there, and there was a phone number. And we're like, hey, really? So if I remember correctly, uh, Glenn gave a call uh, got an idea of the price, uh, which was great. And, uh, immediately I was like, wow, this is, this is interesting. And I believe if, again, if memory serves me correctly, I ended up calling back on Monday, got more information. Again, it seemed extremely promising. I believe we then met the landlord that day and literally had made a decision by the end of the day that we were taking the spot. Um, but ultimately not as a temporary situation, as a, a long-term situation. So literally within 
I think we had dinner on Friday. By Monday, we had found a location and made a decision to order. And uh, to made a decision to not order, but made a decision to open and take take on that space. And you know, you know, we can, you know, we can plan, we can think things out. You know, we can overthink things. We can take forever to make decisions. A lot of people, that's their problem, right? They they have ideas, whatever, but execution is a whole other thing. And then you know. Month passes by, six months. Like so, there's a few years passes by, and they haven't taken any action. Um, and then there's just realizing you have an opportunity in your hands and just going for it. And and uh, I know that's pretty much how I am. Like I, I, if I see something and it makes a lot of sense, and I think of the worst case scenario and it's really not that bad, I jump because you know you you got to make the most of opportunities. So you know within. I think within two weeks, you know, uh, we had already built the store or something like that, something crazy. But, you know, within having that dinner, it was a very short time later that we were open for business. And, uh, yeah, so, again, an example of, like, when you see an opportunity, you know, you can take all the time in the world to, you know, tweak it and think about how you do it, and then you really don't end up creating any action. Or you can just go for it and figure it out as you go. And uh, and that comes with a lot of things. I know for me personally, like, you know, I've been doing this a long time. Um, you know, like, it doesn't take a lot of thinking to know if an opportunity is good and interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, and just, just, you know, to say, you know what, this is a good opportunity, let's do this. Make quick decisions and move, you know. So we did and we opened and, you know, we uh, obviously got off to a big start and things were easy. And, and you know, the, the, the amazing, the most powerful thing about a co-op situation is that because you're splitting the costs, splitting the risks, it really affords you the ability to um, allow a business to grow naturally without any pre- pressure financially. Because, you know, you know, we were making money. I think we made our investment back in the first weekend. You know, because we were open, we we're busy, and uh, and then it was very, you know, very affordable monthly payment, and we were making sales, and you know, like we really didn't have the pressure of you know performing and making things happen overnight because we didn't, it wasn't necessary because of the the power of a co-op opportunity. So you know, we continued along, and and you know, things were going okay, um, but we encountered some challenges, some things that we couldn't foresee. Okay, so basically, um, you know, the, the gallery is uh, consists of the two gals who have very specific type of vintage, amazing stuff, very curated, very unique pieces, and a very loyal following. And then you got the guys who were basically streetwear guys. Um, you know, uh, definitely myself and Glenn are very similar in what we do and what we buy and what we resell. Uh, Tony's also a streetwear guy. Uh, but Tony is uh, also got a very unique guy. He also, uh, you know, sells a lot of outdoor wear. You know, like uh, high-end outdoor wear, and he's also very aggressive on his price points. And that's a fa- uh, formula that's worked for him at Flow. And uh, and that's you know that's the interesting thing about you know like how we all have our own um, sort of business models that we work with yet we all can do well in the same retail setting, you know. But, um, 
but the challenge, the, the main challenge that we faced at uh, at the gallery was uh, was an identity crisis um, because you know, like Flow has a similar, obviously a very, you know, we have a very similar setup to Flow, where there's some streetwear, some uh, you know, unique, unique uh, vintage uh, styles as well. You know, a lot of lady stuff as well too, and those. Um, that works worked extremely well at Flow because there was a huge selection of both styles. So what that created was uh, um, what that creates at Flow is like you know no matter who walks in looking for certain styles, uh, there's enough of each type of product that encourages people to come back um, because there's enough of a selection. And the thing is is. The ideal way to build a vintage store is you want to build a destination spot. You want to build a spot where people will travel to come to it. Not you're not just going to be you know relying on locals because it really doesn't matter where you are. Even if you know you're in a high traffic area in the city, um, to try and live off just the locals is extremely difficult because you know they're going to see the product frequently. So. Um, you know, the turnover isn't as, you know, the product doesn't always look as fresh because they see it frequently. Um, they have a lot of other options to go to. So uh, trying to live off locals will always um, always be limited. And what you want to build is you want to build a spot where people will go to it from, from anywhere, really, within reasonable distance. And when you do that, uh, then you're on a whole other level. And obviously Flow has been able to accomplish that just by the sheer size and selection. Um, but we didn't have that. Okay, We didn't have that in the sense of, um, you know, we're only five vendors. It's a 1,200-square-foot store. Um, so we didn't have that. And it was creating an identity crisis. In other words, clients would come in and they would see, you know, specific style that they like, but there wasn't really a big enough selection to motivate them to come back so we tend to sort of to develop a relationship with locals which is fine but it put a limitation on what we were capable of doing so um that became pretty evident uh, early on um how to fix it was not so clear um so that took some time um now at the same time, I know me personally, like I've noticed in my own businesses that I noticed in, in gathering and watching data uh, on Tricky, um, and just like all the data that's available to me in the businesses that I'm in, um, I started to realize that there was a definitely a, a really strong clientele developing for uh, affordable vintage. So what's affordable vintage? It's basically curated vintage that's you know slightly above. Uh, thrift store pricing so it's curated but uh, it's still not that much more than it would cost you especially now in thrift stores because a lot of vintage is now getting priced pretty high in regular thrift stores um, so you know it was already becoming very aware to me that there was this developing market of clients who were hunting down vintage more in thrift stores they wanted to buy cheaper pieces that weren't necessarily after uh, good pieces. Um, but meanwhile, at the same time, it didn't mean that the, the high-end market was, you know, disappearing. Uh, what, a, what the high-end market, when I mean high-end, I mean basically pieces that are more expensive, um, but like exceptional pieces. You know what I mean? Like clients were becoming much more knowledgeable. 
So, you know, there was a time frame, unfortunately, as, you know, this client base of vintage clothing developed over the last couple of years where um, there was a lot of overpricing and overpaying of vintage. And, you know, uh, and that was very evident to me because I've been doing this like 20 years, right? And I would see pieces being sold that really didn't have much value for like really, you know, uh, you know, I'll just say it for like unbelievably overpriced. And, you know, when a client is in their early phases of understanding a certain type of business, in this case, vintage, they're very like, they're ignorant. They don't really know, they don't understand, they don't have the knowledge base to know where, where there's value and which products are worth the price. They're just going with the flow and, uh, you know, they're just buying stuff. And basically, you know, with time though, they start to realize that, you know, they're, they're overpaying for things and that leaves a bad taste in clients' mouths. And that, that always didn't sit well with me. And, uh, I tried my best to avoid selling a lot of pieces that were very, very hyped up, but which I knew were really not that valuable, really not that rare, and really were not like a good investment. And to me, vintage clothing, the best part about it is that it is a good investment. In other words, like when you buy a good piece, um, you know, like it's not ever going to go down in value. It's actually just going to go up in value. If you take care of it, it's going to be worth more than you paid for it in five to 10 years. And that's not only, you're not only making a good, like a fashion decision or an individualistic decision for your own personal style, but you're making a good financial decision by buying vintage. And that's what's so great about it. And I was just witnessing a lot of people buying stuff that uh, they thought was, you know, vintage and older and valuable or whatever, which was really just overpriced junk. And there's still far too much of that going on. But now the clients are smarter. And now the clients are aware they are they're more knowledgeable and they know what's a good piece and what's not and they there is a nicely developing market of clients who are willing to pay um for good pieces because they know their stuff and that's good so you have both markets but as always the bigger market is just for people who are looking for cool clothes being able to put together fits and outfits and their own personal style and they don't want to pay a lot. And that's understandable because, you know, for a lot of the stuff we sell, they shouldn't be paying a lot. So that was something I was already becoming aware of. That was a developing market. And I was trying to think of ways to come up with, you know, like servicing that market. And, uh, you know, when we started to have some, some, some real lags and real stunts in our growth at the, uh, at the gallery, I really started to uh, look back at um, the data like the sales data and become very, very aware, you know, I, you know, like the way it works, you know, in most co-op stores now, and this is like a flow idea that we've all adopted, which is a great idea is like every sale gets photographed because we're different vendors. That's how we track everything. And then it gets uploaded to a, a Facebook group and then every day, and then vendors can go in and see what they sold. And that not only helps keep track of the sales, but it allows the vendors to see what's selling, see what, what, what prices things are selling at, and it's extremely valuable information that they can use to refine their curating. So they can go out and pick stuff that is popular, price it accordingly, so that they can have better success. And 
we have access to this data, we have access to the sales data. So when we start to encounter these, this, this real lag in our growth, uh, in other words, we, were, we simply weren't growing, we were actually regressing, which is, you know, is not a good thing in business. And, uh, and, you know, the upside to having a co-op store is that, you know, you really, it really frees you up. Like you really don't have to worry about, you know, getting the bills paid and stuff because, you're, you know, you're making some money, you're making sales. And uh, it's such a low cost on an individual basis that you, it allows you that real patience to let it grow. But the downside is it also, uh, it can also make you very complacent. In other words, you could just keep going through the motions and, you know, ignore the fact that you're not growing and ignore the fact that you're not progressing, which is things that you should always be looking to do in business. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's you know... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's a death sentence if you're not growing, you know. And uh, co-ops, stores, because of the nature can all, all, you know, can mask that, and you can get complacent. And uh, but you, you, at the end of the day, you can't ignore that, and you have to, you know, ask yourself some hard questions. Why are we not growing? Why are we becoming stagnant? And why are we even regressing? Because even if you have low risk and low cost, like you know, sooner or later, uh, you know, you're going to have to pay the piper. You know what I mean? It will come to a point where it's just not, it's just not going to be working and you're going to have to, you know, move on. At the end of the day, you also want to grow. You want to improve. You're not working that hard for nothing. So, so basically when those situations became more and more glaring, uh, I really started to dive deep into the, uh, the data of our sales. And I started to see that overwhelmingly, um, our sales were of items that were $35 or less, like overwhelmingly. Occasionally we would sell, uh, a piece that was a little bit more expensive. Um, but the percentage was so small in comparison to the percentage of sales that were $35 or less that it became glaring that, uh, you know, that's where the market or the, the majority of the market is heading and the majority of the market is where your most stable business is right so it just kind of struck me I was just like well wait a minute you know like maybe that's what we need maybe we need a store where everything is $35 and less and I thought about it and I could say well you know what we could just talk about it and just make sure all our uh, you know most of our products are $35 and less and we'll be fine but at the same time, we also had this identity crisis. Okay, we really didn't have uh, a marketing point, something that we could wrap our marketing around. Okay, we couldn't say we were a streetwear store. We couldn't say we were a whim uh, whimsy goth store. We couldn't say we were a traditional vintage store because we weren't any one of those things. So there's nothing we could really, you know, wrap an identity around that we could then take to marketing and, and uh, you know, and market around and build a concept around and have an identity. Like, what is the gallery? What are they? Who are they? We didn't have that. So I knew we needed to find some type of commonality. And, uh, and then, you know, it just kind of struck me that, well, wait a minute, what if we built this concept around having ceiling pricing, around, you know, we're all kinds of different types of vintage in there, 
but everything is $35 less. That would give us a commonality. That would give us something that we could rally our marketing around that could give us an identity of who the gallery is, okay? And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, wow, this is, this is good. This is good. Um, as well, at the same time, um, you know, this is just, again, my opinion um, in terms of, like, spending the last, especially the last seven years, you know, with Tricky Inc. and trying to understand the psychology of the vintage buyer, but uh, the psychology of the vintage buyer is it's, it's very obsessive. Like, people who love vintage are very passionate about it, very obsessed about it. They can't get enough, right? They just want to see the next piece. They want to see things that are interesting. They're just, it's like, a, it's a passion. It's just like thrifting, you know? That's what the draw is of thrifting. It's like, it just, you know, it's very addictive. You just want to keep going through because you never know what you're going to find. There's like an obsessiveness to it. Um, and and that comes with, you know, it's very hard to convey that, to offer that to the client when you have uh, a limited amount of inventory in your store, okay? In our, especially in vintage, okay? Like you can be a high fashion boutique and have like, a, you know, like a lot of these boutiques in New York City or, you know, these very trendy boutiques, they have like, a very minimal amount of stuff on the on the on the racks, and uh, and that works, you know, when you're talking high end pieces or whatever. That psychology only obviously works for that market, but it's not ideal for the the client of vintage clothing. Vintage clothing, they're obsessed. They want to walk into a store that is slammed full of stuff. Okay, you don't want it to be sloppy. You don't want it to be like unshoppable. But it needs to be full. People need to be sliding those hangers down so they can get their fill all in one spot. And if you can give that to the clients, then they want to come back. And you, you got to combine it with also, also always keeping your stock fresh. You know, because if they come back and it's the same stuff, then you lose that as well. So I knew that we needed to add more stock. And, uh, and I think... You know, like I was just thinking about it, and we've, we've talk, had talked about doing pop-ups, and uh, I knew pop-ups would be a great way to get to know a lot of the vendors, um, so we could see which vendors would be, like, you know, good fits for anything that we were working on, uh, you know, whose curation was good, uh, etc. So, I knew that we needed to get more vendors, and the original plan was to do pop-ups, and which we did, and the pop-ups were okay, um, but pop-ups are challenging. Because pop-ups, uh, you know, like, uh, timing is big, uh, you know, weather is big, because you're dealing with such a short window of being available, you know. So, like, we did a couple pop-ups where we were open on, for the weekend, we did two different styles of pop-ups, um, and, uh, and they were, you know, okay at best. They were not great. And uh, weather played a part in it, uh, and also, you know, like, it's also something you kind of got to stick with and get through the tough times. Um, but what it allowed us to do is allowed us to work with some some vendors to get to know some vendors, which is something that I had wanted to do, or I not that wanted to do. I've been working on for literally a, a couple of years, getting to know the vendors in this town in Montreal, getting to know who would be ideal to work with, getting to know their talent levels in terms of curation and also uh, sourcing, which is very, very big. 
And, uh, you know, I've been doing that for a couple of years because I had a lot of things that I knew I wanted to do. Um, you know, the T2 idea uh, has been something in the works for a long time. Um, so, but I knew that in order to get to the point where, you know, I could start working with vendors, I had to get to know them, you know, and they, I had to show them, you know, uh, how we work and the professionalism of how we work, uh, the attention to detail, and also uh, how we treat the vendors, how my intent was to treat vendors. You know, like you got to treat your vendors well. They're your lifeblood. And, uh, and it's very important to understand their needs and their needs are, are basic. Like they need to, for example, they need to get paid quickly because they have to go out and buy more inventory. Um, they need to not have their time taxed. You know, they need to have freedom. So that, you know, low, low cost, um, low maintenance opportunities are going to be very appealing to them. So, uh, you know, I had already been engaging for several years, starting with uh, when I was doing Instagram Lives, to get to know different vendors, to get to know people that I could potentially work with down the line. And uh, I'm a patient guy. Like, I knew, you know, there's still a lot of things that I want to execute and get done. And I knew that it was going to take a lot of time, you know, years to start to get to know people. Because we were very isolated and tricky. We didn't know anybody downtown. Uh, you know, we were just doing our own thing. So I knew that was going to take time. And, uh, but I'm okay with that. You know, you got to be patient if you want to build. So um, the pop-ups that we're doing at the gallery was a great opportunity to get to know uh, some vendors, to know their capabilities, to, you know, to physically talk with them and, you know, get an understanding of what their needs were, what their frustrations were, what the challenges a lot that we're facing. It was an excellent time to gather data as well, too. And, uh, and that's, that's business. Like, you know, we were thinking, you know, let's go pop-ups. Let's see if we can do regular pop-ups. But for me, it quickly became evident to, that, you know, some vendors were, were really able to see the vision and also understand the importance of being patient when you're building something. Um, you know, not everybody is willing to do that. They want instant results. Otherwise, they're gone. So the pop-ups were just that step along the way that allowed us to, you know, uh, collaborate and eventually build uh, an understanding with certain vendors that we knew we could work with long term so it quickly you know morphed into like how you know instead of doing this a pop-up why don't we make them guest vendors on a more regular basis which eventually developed into uh, what we call long-term guest vendors so basically you know essentially they're permanent vendors that we're working with but they're not permanent like the founders. So in other words, uh, it's not quite the same, but even though they're, you know, quote unquote guest vendors, they're permanent. They're going to be there every month as long as they want to be. And what that allowed us to do is, you know, maximize our space in there. And, uh, and now we had, you know, we were using our space to the max and we had a much larger selection and we accomplished that objective of now having much more selection, much more stock in store that we were fitting the needs, the psychology of the vintage client. They were walking in going, holy shit, there's a lot of stuff here. Okay. And then now coming to agreement, sitting down all together and, you know, it was not a really difficult discussion. We all saw, and, you know, we were all you know, aware that the you know, majority of the stuff we were selling was 35 and under. We all came to a, you know, an agreement pretty quickly that, this was something that we could build an identity around. 
And now we could say this is what the gallery is all about. You know, it's almost like we, we rebooted, rebranded, and we became Montreal's first uh, curated vintage clothing store with ceiling pricing. And now we have this concept to build around. We're now added vendors. We now have maximized our stock. There was a diversity. There was something for everyone. We just basically, in that one fell swoop, in over a very short period of time, uh, fixed all our flaws. You know, we had a, uh, a marketing concept. We had an identity build around, which is ceiling pricing. We increased our inventory on store. We lowered the overall costs of the business, and uh, and now it was extremely affordable for everybody involved. And and it almost and then once we just started to release that, once we announced that, we went to that route. Uh, it took off very, very quickly, and that's just a sign of uh, of how this concept was in demand. And and that's the interesting thing about business. You know, we started off with the one set of ideas. Um, you know, we really, you know, we were like, there's no way we could really foresee that identity crisis. You know, that's not something we could see in advance. You know what I mean? Now we can. I know me personally now. You know, having lived through that, if I'm looking at a business, starting a business, opening a new store, um, because of that experience with the gallery, I think I am pretty comfortable that I'd be able to identify potential identity crises in advance. But until you live it, it's very, like, you don't know what you don't know. And and that's the thing about business. And that's why you got to be always willing to embrace change, always be able to pivot quickly um, because if you're able to do that, you can take a, uh, a poor situation and turn it to, you know, into a good situation very quickly, but you have to be humble. You have to have the humility to step back and say, okay, what, what have I done wrong here? What have we done wrong and how do we fix it? Okay. And a lot of people, uh, a, they don't have the ability to spot that. They also, you know, B don't have the, uh, the energy to want to change and and see uh, they don't have the humility to want to change and to be able to like you know say hey yeah you know I made some mistakes but now I'm fixing it and uh, and we were able to do that and it was able to like really turn that place around in a relatively quick amount of time which is amazing and you know and then you know we had avoided um, you know like I have a certain way of, of building my businesses that I've learned from experience. It's very simple. It's have the good idea, get it open, and then create good content. Find the good content that really uh, responds well organically, and then put money behind your ads, and then watch the watch the business grow. That's how we built Tricky, um, between a lot of good organic, organic content, but uh, we also use paid ads to really build our following, to build our client base. They're extremely effective. Um, but, you know, you have to have, you know, a very clear identity and a very clear marketing plan uh, as to what your business is and what you're offering the clients before you start running paid ads. Because if you don't know who you are, uh, you only get, like, uh, that one chance to make the first impression. I mean, for the most part, and you know, you can 
you can change what you're doing like we did if you're still in that organic phase. But once you start spending money on advertising and you're reaching larger audiences, uh, if you go out there doing that and you really don't know who you are, uh, it's, 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 it's going to be very confusing to the clients. And, you know, we had talked about doing paid ads early on. It never materialized. And I knew right away, or not right away, but I knew in a very short period of time that it was a bad idea to start paying money for ads before we really knew what, knew what, was, what our identity was. Uh, when it became very clear to me that we had this identity crisis and that we had some flaws, I was like, no, it's not, now's not the time to spend our money. We need to figure out how to fix this first, and then we will. So once we had that, and we then we started producing the content and uh, paying the ads, and very quickly it started to take off. And uh, and the paid ads were producing well, and then uh, and then we also had a uh, a TikTok that Ethan EB Thrifts, one of our long term guest vendors, did that blew up that uh, really helped us. Uh, but it's important to understand that when a, you know when something goes viral, you still have to have a sound concept. So. We knew that our ceiling pricing, the selection that we had, we knew we had a good thing. We just needed to spread the word. And uh, the paid ads would have done that job, but we were, we were very lucky. Well, I mean, you know, the harder, harder you work, the luckier you are, as they say. We were very lucky for that viral, that uh, TikTok to go viral, because what it did is it just informed a shitload of people really quickly about our great concept, you know, and... and really that you know what we offer is pretty pretty great you know we have great stuff everything's 35 and under it's just ideal for the marketplace people needed to know about it the paid ads would have got us to there eventually but the uh tiktok that went viral um got us there quicker and that's the thing again the power of a of uh you know co-op if we're constantly working together posting content you know religiously as a unit uh you're more likely to have a piece of uh content go viral or do extremely well but it doesn't just need to go viral you just need consistent content to do well organically like if you post a piece of content and basically it, it uh you know it, it does really well and has 40 50 shares you know and 25 30 saves like consistently doing that will have the same effect as a, as a piece of content that goes viral just over a bit longer period of time. But the thing is, is you can't control what goes viral. Like, you really don't know. Like, it's a, it's a crapshoot. Um, but if you're being consistent, you know, uh, it's not a sure thing, in other words. You never know. You might produce content for five years and never have anything go viral. But if you're producing good, solid content as a unit in large amounts and you're getting consistent content that has 20 shares, 30 shares, 50 shares, you know what I mean? Uh, it's the same thing as going viral, but it's a sure thing. You know what I mean? It just takes a little longer. So, you know, if it's it's not complicated in the, in the world we live in. That's what's so amazing about being in business now is you have a good idea, you have a good thing, good store, good product, good pricing, just a good thing that people want to know about. You produce your content, you put money behind the ads, and a lot of people are like, oh, I don't have any, I don't have the money for marketing. Yet, no, you can't afford not to. You can't afford not to. That's an investment in your company. You know, like if you're cutting corners because you don't want to spend money on advertising, 
then you're going to lose. You're just going to lose with that mentality. So, so like the fact that we we're able to, you know, fix our flaws and come up with this really valuable uh, option for vintage clothing buyers. Uh, now we had the opportunity to start running ads, and uh, it really paid off. And uh, we have a really good ad structure now. We have ads that uh, work extremely well, and we just keep reusing them because you just want to keep milking those ads. If they keep producing, like you don't need to be making new ones. You know, you you keep running an ad that that produces as long as it continues to produce. When it starts to like not produce, yeah, then you start to make a new piece or find a new piece to replace it with. Um, but like, there's nothing wrong with having you know, running an ad, posting a reel, and then running it as a paid ad. And if it's doing extremely well, they just keep boosting it. Just boost it and boost it. Keep it going. Like, don't fix what isn't broke kind of thing. So so that's the story of the gallery. That's the story of how we were able to, uh, you know, uh, fix our flaws, turn it around, and turn it into something that is really, really rock and rolling. It's growing at a really nice rate. And, uh, and that's why, like... It's just, it's crazy because like, you know, in the fall, like we had some serious issues and by, you know, February, late January, we were ready to open up the second floor and that's how quickly can, things can turn around as long as you're on the ball with your business, as long as you are understanding that that's part of being an entrepreneur is understanding that change is, the only constant is change. You know, you got to be constantly looking, how am I going to improve this? How am I not going to get complacent? You know, you know, how do, you know, like, uh, I want to quote uh, Gary Vee, like, uh, take a look at your business constantly and, and break it, figure out what's wrong with it. You know, don't, don't bask in what's right with it. That doesn't serve you. It doesn't help you. Take a look at it and, and really be, have an honest look at it and say, well, what's wrong with my business? Where are the flaws in my business? Even when it's going amazing, even when it's going incredibly well and you're like rolling and you, there's that tendency to think like, oh, wow, look how smart I am. Look how successful I am. That's a mistake. You know, take a look at your business when it's doing amazing and saying, what am I, what is wrong with it? Where is the potential, like what am I, what flaw in this business could put me out of business? And that's hard to do when it's going well, but you need to do it because it keeps you a step ahead of everything so that you can keep, you know, maintain this business, keep it good for a long period of time. So, so that's what happened with the gallery. And I think it's a great example of what it's like to be in business and what it's the effect it can have on you if you understand uh, that that's what business is all about. Business is about you know, never stop improving, um, being, having the humility to take a step back and say, what have I done wrong here? What am I missing? And then having the, uh, the gumption, the strength, uh, to, to make the necessary changes, uh, so that you can, you can fix your issues and just sustain success. So, uh, yeah, so I think it's a great almost case study and what it's like to be in business and we're uh, super excited about things that are happening there and we're going to continue to to keep an eye on it because we want it to to sustain the success
Thank you so much, guys, for listening to this episode of the podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, uh, please share it with people. Uh, Please subscribe and help spread the word on the podcast. I would greatly appreciate that. So until next time, talk to you soon.